Please remain standing as we continue worship with a reading from Romans 5, 1 through 8. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to church, y'all. Please have a seat and say hello to someone as you see. Good morning. Uh, I, uh, my name is Chris. I'm a lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're in a conversation that we're just calling Churchianity. Uh, if you're a guest, let me fill you in real quick about what we mean by that word, because it's a made-up word. It's not a real word. Um, but it's pretty intuitive if you just compare Churchianity to what we know Christianity. Um, it's just church stuff. Um, church people, church society, church services, with Jesus removed from it. Churchianity versus Christianity, right? So it's the Christian religion, which we're all pretty familiar with for the most part, probably grew up in the, if you just live in the South, right? Okay, well, it's Christian religion gutted of the thing that made it Christian in the first place. And basically becomes a social club. Um, really what I call a really lame hobby for the weekends, if you ask me, right? And it creates this group that you can belong to. You can jump in. You can even volunteer. You can preach, man. You can read the, you can, you can uh, you know, lead a small group. You can do all the things and never personally have to deal with Jesus himself. You don't have to really love him or know him or submit to him or walk in his love and his power. You can just do church. That's the beautiful thing of churchianity. It completely lets you off the hook relationally before God. And so it's super attractive to many people in the South, right? You can do church, do the Christian thing, claim to be a Christian, and like completely neglect the supernatural aspect of his presence and his power and his leadership in any real way. It's actually very convenient. I'm not just being snarky. It is. It's very convenient, okay? So some people call this cultural Christianity. It's kind of a social thing. So whatever it is, it's Christianity absent of a thing that makes a Christian in the first place. So the question is, that we've been wrestling with and just talking about is, like, how does that happen? Well, it happens in a lot of ways. One way to think about it is churchianity is kind of, you could think about it this way. Churchianity is kind of the word on the street of what it means to be a Christian. You know what I'm talking about? Like the word on the street. Like this is what, you know, I mean, yeah, there's a pastor, he's talking about this, but this is what he really means, you know? So <laughs> Christianity, as opposed to that, is defined by biblical historical fidelity and personal engagement with God. Churchianity, word on the street. So one of the undergirding thoughts of this entire series and conversation is this. Here's one of the undergirding thoughts of how this is possible. Um, ideas tend to run downhill. Got it? So organizations, institutions, social movements, visions tend to run downhill. What do I mean by that? Well, 
They started with some grand vision or idea or narrative. And that narrative usually claims to answer questions like, who are we and what's the problem with the world and what do you do to fix it, right? And it's mass, it's awesome. Everyone's like, yes, that's who we are. That's the problem. And that's how we're going to fix it. Charge the hill. That's how organizations and visions start, okay? Let's charge the hill. Let's fix society, right? And, and And as that vision, as that goal, institutional, whatever it is, narrative, as it works its way through society, it collides with a lot of differing assumptions about the world. We tracking? Collides with a lot of different assumptions about what... What, how the world works, okay? So people would say things like, well, I think that vision means this, and I should act this way. And people come to crazy different conclusions, okay? And the grander the vision, the more people flock to it, the wider diversity of what it means on the street. So let me explain what I mean. I know it's kind of out there. You're like, is this philosophy one-on-one? What's going on? All right, let me, let me explain what I mean. All right, let me give you a silly example and a sobering example. Every fast food Wendy's restaurant has a sign that says, quality is our recipe. Do I need to say anything else? Okay, I'm not trying to hate on Wendy's, okay? I know some of you are like, how dare you, right? Okay, look, not trying to hate on Wendy's. I'm just saying there's a disconnect somewhere, okay? Maybe it started. Okay, okay, silly example. Okay, more sobering example. Um, Ideas run downhill. Uh, let's start with it. Let's have a vision. What's the vision? Okay, well, let's say this is the vision. Here's the vision. God loves everyone, and they're made in his image, uh, and we should value all life. That's a good vision. Now, a lot of people flock to that vision, right? And then you get some demonized man blowing up an abortion clinic. Okay, so that idea ran downhill. That's not what it means, bro. Like, you missed something real fundamental there, all right? You've completely missed it. In a stunning, holistic way, missed the point. Tragically, heartbreaking, missed the point. All right? So it's why we've been using examples of telephone. Telephone, right? The game telephone, right? You know, and it goes around the circle, and you get all these kind of crazy outcomes at the end of the circle, right? Because you're getting your information. You're not going to the primary source. You get the secondary, third, fourth, fifth source, right? And this is what happens in churchianity. We get our sources from our buddies, and our pastors, and, and we say, oh, okay, that's what it means. And so the reality is churchianity can only exist in a, in a, in a Christian bubble in which no one reads the Bible. Amen. That's just, it's just the reality, because you're just not checking the primary source. It can only exist when Christians just generally don't read the Bible. They're content with secondary issues, twice removed, instead of picking up God's primary wet means of self-disclosure. Oh, that's a loaded sentence right there. What's the Bible? What's the Bible? Oh, well, it's his primary means of self-disclosure, right? That's, that's big. You should sit with that, right? And letting the whole council of Scripture inform the life. So today we sit with the gospel according to churchianity and the gospel according to the Bible, right? Um, you ask any person on the street, hey, man, what's the gospel? Like, what, is it, what does it mean for your life? What, what, what's the gospel, Right? And you might get some general overlap of some vague ideas about sin and heaven and the cross, but what it means for how people should like really live, that's where you get a lot of breakdown. That's where it begins to splinter off and masses proliferation. Uh, The gospel, the word itself, simply in the Bible means good news. So when you ask someone, what's the gospel? What you're asking is, hey, dude, hey, what's the good news of Christianity? Some of you are like, it's not good news at all. What are you talking about? Well, that's what it claims to be. 
Christianity claims to be good news. What is it? Some people, if you would ask someone, hey, what's the good news of Christianity? If you were just like right now, like, okay, I'm going to just mentally, what's the good news of Christianity? Some people won't even explain what the gospel is at all. They'll just explain what it means for how you're supposed to live. So what's the good news of Christianity? Well, you're supposed to go to church, and I think you go to heaven when you die, and you follow these rules. Ah, that's a big one. Yes, yes, follow these rules. And that all seems to be a part of it, right? Like on the street, right? But is that how the Bible talks about the good news? And is it possible that our ideas of the gospel have run downhill, and our understanding has strayed from how the biblical authors understood it? So I had a very ambitious list of four gospel perversions to get to. Not going to happen. We're going to get through one. All right. So what is the, what is probably, in my humble opinion, the most widespread word on the street of what the good news of Christianity is? Like if you were to think, what's like the probably biggest understanding, maybe amongst Christians or maybe amongst non-Christians, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Like what do you think the biggest understanding? Well, I think... Maybe one of the largest understandings of the good news of Christianity is, is this. Here's the good news. Here's the good news that Jesus, about Jesus and all the stuff. Okay. Jesus came to bring new rules. He laid them out. And here's the thing. They are really stringent. Like Moses was like, hey, just don't commit, don't like commit adultery. He was like, you can't even think about a woman. Right? Moses was like, hey, just don't murder. Like, and we all got that. Right? And Jesus was like, no, you can't even be angry with people. Right? He came and he brought these really stringent rules. And dude, listen, but listen, if you do it, like if you'll, if you'll follow them, man, you'll, you'll belong. God will accept you. In fact, in fact, God will probably owe you something, right? Cause like you don't owe him anything. And if you're like, well, okay, I'm going to obey these rules. And like, you're probably going to get God in your favor if you obey the rules, right? Yeah, for sure. Right. So like, yeah, obey these rules. You'll get God in your debt. He'll owe you something. And then like, he'll give you good life. I don't know. Right. If you obey him, that's the whole point. You got to obey the rules. Obey the rules, then God will love you, okay, if we obey. In this narrative, what's the problem in the world? Well, the problem in the world is that you don't obey the rules. And what's the answer? More rules. Turning left didn't work last time. Turn left harder, right? Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. When I just said that you got, hey, 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 don't lust. Hey, dudes, listen. If, when I just said that, was anyone just like, oh, you're not supposed to do that? Are you serious? Did you, know, did you know that? No one did that, did they? No, because you know the rules. It's not a, if, if we know the things that we ought to be doing, like we should, know, we should be generally selfless, Right? Let's just, just be, just, no one's going to be like, oh, that's, I don't think, that's like universally accepted. Be selfless. Don't be selfish. Don't be a jerk. But that's not going to stop you from hogging the remote tonight, is it? Uh Uh-oh, I saw some elbows on that one. Right? See, if, if the problem was that we didn't obey the rules, how is more rules going to fix that? How's that going to do anything? It's just going to make, it's going to compound the problem. Like if shame and guilt and sin was the issue, it's just walking around with a bunch of guilt in my life. No one knows the junk I've done. Walking around, go to church. I'm barely going to, I'm going to get struck by light and going to church, right? Walking all this guilt in my life, but here I go to church and here's the answer. More rules. 
You failed those. Here's some more. <clears throat> right? More, here, a big mountain on your shoulders. Here you go. <clears throat> right? Guys, this is many people's understanding of Christianity. And we think if we obey the rules, then, then he'll, he'll love us. The, the, the term that's come up in the past 20 years, I guess, that kind of describes this really, really well is called this. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, let me just real quick. What's deism? If you if didn't, religion 101. Deism portrays God as a clockmaker. That's the idea of deism. The idea of deism, very, very modern idea and very prevalent in our day and age, especially in the South, is yeah, sure, there's a God. Of course there's a God, right? Look around creation, it's beautiful. But God is like a clockmaker and the, the universe is like a clock, right? And so he made it, sure. But then he got out of Dodge because, I mean, look at, you know, we're messed up, right? So he, he gets out of Dodge and we're left on our own to figure it out. That's deism. That's the philosophical religious position of deism. Sure, there's a God, but he's not engaged. But he did give us this moral code. And if we do it, it has a therapeutic impact on us. Therapeutic. So in other words, it could be psychosomatic. You know what psychosomatic means? It means it's not really real, it's just in your head. But if we obey the rules, we feel better about ourselves. If we obey the rules, uh, it helps us ignore our more serious character flaws. And it helps us look down our nose at other people, which is really what religion's about, isn't it? <laughs> to be better than the next guy, Right? So it makes us feel good about ourselves because, you know, we're Christians, after all, we can obey the rules. All of us are great at obeying the rules, right? So that was forced. That was a little forced, right? So but there's this moral code, okay? And if we do it, it has a therapeutic impact on us, right? So the good news of Christianity is here's some rules. If you obey them, that act will give you value. It'll give you self-esteem. You'll belong. And of course, guys, this makes lots of sense. I mean, some of you are like, what are you talking about, dude? This is, sounds like... Sounds like the sermons I hear every week, right? Or in the past, when I grew up as a kid, sounds exactly like what I heard, right? Because I know God's a holy God. I know I'm messed up. I know society's messed up. So I think if we just obeyed the rules, it would be better, which of course is true. The question is, is that what God wants from you? Is that what God's after? Is it just about some formalities and rules and rituals that if you jump through, he's like, okay, we can be friends now that you've jumped through the hoops. Is that how friendships work? Yeah, guys, listen. This is what many of us believe, all right? It just makes so much, we understand rules, they're clear, they're, you, if you obey them, you're in, if you don't, you're out. It's how our legal system works, it's how life works. Every day I'm trying to teach my kids this. Obey the rules, please, for the love of all that is good. Share with your kid, you know, brothers, siblings, right? clean the house, obey the rules, right? If you want friends in 30 years, you know, you need to probably do, okay, so. And of course, there's clear scripture that says you're supposed to obey the rules. You're supposed to listen. You're supposed to yield to God's wisdom. But my question, the, the point of the question today that we're wrestling with is, is that the good news? Is that what Jesus came to do? The, the problem with most people isn't that they don't know the rules, is that they lack the power to obey them, right? And more rules will, no, will not fix that. And the more you sit with the Bible, like actually read it, which I'm not assuming anyone does, okay? But like, dude, if you like sit with it, and read it, you start seeing something that kind of puts the edge of the knife on the gospel message. The, the New Testament writers start talking about the insufficiency of the rules. Very strange language. Very strange. Insufficiency of the, it gets really confusing, especially if you went to church and you're thinking, God, it's just, a, we're, we're saved to rules, Chris. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it's a bunch of rules. How is it not? And so it's, when you start reading the Bible, it's like, what? what? 
Uh, let me, so let me just give you some things the Bible says, okay, about what redemption is to and, and how, right? Romans 1, uh, 8, 3 says this. Listen, put your, put your thinking caps on. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son. What, what did that just say? God, God did something that the rules couldn't do. He's saying there's something wrong, there was something insufficient about those. In fact, in Galatians 3.13, says, Jesus redeemed you from being under the curse of the law. That just rules. What? I thought, what? I thought we were redeemed from sin, right? I thought we were supposed to be redeemed from like, you know, drinking and cussing and, you know, watching R-rated movies. Dude, I thought we were redeemed from like porn, you know, and like anger and breaking the rules, right? That just said, Jesus redeemed you from the rules. Is this confusing to anyone else? Is there some some cognitive dissonance going on right now? I, I thought we were redeemed from sin, Lord. We're talking about redeemed from rules. Romans 6, 14, for sin will not have dominion over you. Okay, so that's a part of it. Oh, oh, you know why? Because you're not under rules anymore, but under grace. Apparently there's something about the rules that keeps you under sin. Galatians 3, 2. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law, by following the rules or by hearing with faith? Combining that with faith. Galatians 2, 21. Y'all, here it is. If righteousness were through the rules... Christ died for no purpose. What is he addressing? Churchianity. He's saying, dude, if you could be made righteous through the rules, then you don't need Jesus. You've taken him out of the deal. You have churchianity, not Christianity. So fascinating. If you think being a Christian is obeying the rules, you effectively have moved Jesus from the scene. You have churchianity, not Christianity. Let's sit with this sentence because it's huge. What's he mean? All right? Because uh, it's a really big deal, I think. Like if you've moved Christ from Christianity, right? Scorning his death and all this. But we don't talk like righteousness and law anymore, do we? Anyone use righteousness this week? No. If you're a surfer, maybe you're like, righteous, right? But no, not what we're talking about. Right. The law. No, we don't talk like that anymore, okay? This is, this is Christianese language, pastor. <laughs> what does righteousness mean? It feels very disconnected from us. Most of us didn't even engage with the scripture. I just read it. Turn your brain off, right? Christianese, right? Y'all, righteousness just means rightness. Rightness. It means being in the right. You get an argument. Obviously, your spouse is wrong, and you are Right. You're right. And of course, rightness equates to your value as a person, doesn't it? No one likes wrong people. If you lost the fight, you're a loser. <laughs> and no one cares about you. If you're right, oh, then you got value. Oh, then, then you're in the, oh, you're good to go. Right according to who? Oh, right according to everyone, right? I mean, you, you got to be right. You got to be right according to culture. 
You got to be right according, according to the latest news. You got to be right according to the latest sentiment of, of skinny. You got to be right according to the, the idea that we should be wealthy. And if you're right, you have value. And if you can't figure out how to get on the right side of the argument, you're a loser and you do not have value. We're talking about rightness. Wash righteousness out of your mind for a second and think about the f- being right. Someone loses, someone wins, right? And it is phenomenally fascinating what some of you will do to never be seen as wrong. Like breathtakingly spectacular, right? You have to be right because your value lies on it. Dude, it's not an option to be wrong. So your spouse asks you, hey, did you do that thing, that really dumb, insignificant thing? You forgot. But you can't be wrong! So you lie straight-faced to your spouse because you forgot to take out the trash? What? What is happening? What kind of desperate creature are you that you're going to lie about something stupid like that just so you're not seen as wrong? Because we have been discipled in the way to be right. You know how you be right? Whatever it takes. (laughs) Lie, cheat, steal, manipulate. Be wealthier than the next guy. Be faster than the next guy. Look, for a man, no more humiliating thing than losing a fight. Like you weren't strong enough. (sighs) You talk about desperation. You talk about getting scrappy, right? Like no dude is ever gonna, uh, it was a fair fight. Nah, dude, what are you gonna do? You're like, man, you cheated, bro, right? That's how, how the pressure is on us to be right at all cost. You have to win. You have to be right. And if you lose, debunk the game. It's a stupid game, right? It's rigged. Okay, that was not a political statement. All right, let's just move on, all right? All right? Y'all, this is how we define our, and establish our value as a person. It's how we think about rightness. You gotta be smarter than everyone else, right? More wealthy. You gotta be the most interesting person in the room, (laughs) right? Because, why? Why? You you just Google that. Just see all this stuff written about this, right? And the most interesting person in the room, right? The smartest guy in the room, right? Everyone's just got to be that right. Because your value's resting on it. It's all in your performance, your rightness. If If you lose, it was rigged, right? It's fascinating. It's fascinating what we do. Apparently, there is something so deeply important about being seen as right that we are willing to do all sorts of things. So when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about your framework your source of rightness. We're talking about, when the Bible says righteousness, it's getting at what are you looking to to establish your sense of worth and value as a person, which of course will always be constructed largely by the society that we live in. When I say in the right, your obvious question should be according to who? Because there's right according to men, there's right according to God. Moralistic therapeutic deism mixes the two. It takes the framework of establishing your own rightness in your own steam, and it mixes it with religious jargon. 
See, the deism bit relieves you of any responsibility before an active present God, which is very convenient, right? He's not engaged. However, if that's the way God is, if he made the world and left and gave you a pretty rigorous ethical code to live by, and then he said, good luck, see you later, right? It also means it's totally up to you to get it right. It means that you are now the source of your rightness. It's on you. It's all on you. And if you fail, well, you're out. No wonder so many Christians live under crippling anxiety. Because we live under the illusion that you can establish your rightness on your own, especially for your religious, right? Because religion has long list of no-nos, right? Do you know what that list of no-nos inevitably creates in any society? It creates winners and losers. It creates people who can do it, or at least fake it. And then it creates people who can't do it, who get the short end of the stick, who just have bad luck and they're the losers. And these are the cosmic rules and they are flinchingly rigid. And if you can't get on the right side of the game, you're worthless. Okay, I've said it before, right? But that's not what we just read, y'all. This is fascinating. The gospel according to the Bible says this. But now, I'm going to read it a little differently. I'm going to put in, okay. The rightness. The rightness of God has been made known to you outside of the rules. Although, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They talk about it all day long, this rightness that God's going to give you. But the rightness of God is through faith in Jesus, who believe. There's no distinction. All of sin falls short of the glory of God, right? So this is very difficult for us to believe and, and to get with, right? A rightness, a sense of value that it's outside of my strength and performance and ability this sounds dangerous, Chris. There's a sense of rightness and value given to any who would receive it as pure gift, language of adoption of sons and daughters, language of security and safety in God's hands. God shares his rightness abundantly freely as a pure gift of grace. This is very, very challenging for us, especially if you grew up in church, because your whole life you were taught that you're better than everyone else because you obeyed the rules. Now, I would never say that you are not better than anyone else. The Bible would, however, say that you are not right. right. So there's this idea. There's this biblical narrative. Here's a rightness outside of your performance freely given. All right. The difficulty we're pointing out today is what's that supposed to look like? Like, what's that supposed to do in our lives? What does it mean? Sense of value, rightness given outside of me grasping for it and getting it for myself. What's that look like? Well, I'll just make it personal. All right, here we go. Here's what it looks like for me, all right? Or I'll just imagine a scenario with you so we can get our mind around this idea of being given a rightness outside of our own performance, all right? So I, I, uh, I just came on full-time. Most of, you know, most of you know that, I think. I was a photographer for five years, um, made money, and I just this January came on full-time. I am daggum no-holds-barred right now, all right? I don't know if you've picked it up. Chris, uh, Pastor Chris got turned up, all right? I'm, I'm like, getting scrappy, like I'm like full-on, like teeth bared. I'm like 150% right now, all right? Some of you are like, yeah, you need to chill out, dude, because you're like freaking me out, right? No, you, <laughs> hey, man, listen, water's fine, man, water's fine. Jump on in, like it's a little cold, but your flesh will die in the process. All right, so... I'm just getting scrappy in my life, all right? Like the intensity has been turned up on me right now, all right? <laughs> Some of you are like, that's why I'm looking at a different church. All right, so this is why, this is why. Listen to me right now, all right? There is no way that I'm gonna get to the end of this year and say I could have tried harder. Ain't gonna happen, bro. I'm all in, all right? Well, good for you, Chris. Sounds great. This is my point. Let's say that I get to the end of this year. We get to the end of this year. 
and I fail. Like I say something stupid, that sounds reasonable, right? Probably, yeah. Like, you already did, dummy, right? Right? Everyone leaves. Everyone's offended, right? Can't pay the bills. The church dies. It's over. Go home. You tried your hardest and you failed, Chris. You lost. You gave it everything you got and it wasn't good enough. All right, well, I'd probably cry a little. (laughs) I'd probably lean on people that love me for who I am and not what I can produce. Like, if you don't have a friend like that, you should get a friend like that. And then I would stand up and I'd say to my family, let's find a church, let's serve the body of Christ, and let's ask how to give our, pour our lives, to wring our lives out for the gospel in this new season. Some of us are like, well, why, why would you do that? Dude, you lost, you failed, you weren't good enough. You know why I can do that? Because my value's not resting on my performance. Do you know what that means? Unstoppable doesn't even come close to it. Like, it means that I can fail and fail and fail and willingly acknowledge it all and get back up again. This is the kind of security that the gospel gives you. It's, it, it, dude, can you, um, guys, can you imagine if your value wasn't resting on your performance? You know what that would do to you as a man? You know how, how many stories people tell you? You got to one up that story, you know? Right? Imagine the pressure valve that would be released in your heart and life if you weren't managing your reputation all the time, right? The world, and probably you, would say, dude, you're done. Give up. You tried. You couldn't do it, and you weren't enough, right? And as a Christian, not a a churchianity, but a Christian, I don't have this narrow, exclusive definition of personal value that the world's given me that's all based on my performance. The gospel has freed me from that oppressive framework. I am free. Number one, from desperately trying to manage my image in front of everyone, that feels good. But number two, free to run with all my heart and fail miserably and get up and run again because it's not resting on my shoulders. I'm not under that tyranny anymore. When you say yes to the gospel, you are saying yes to another source of rightness that is apparently offered to anyone who would receive it. You know, people say, Christianity is so narrow and exclusive and rigid. No, Christianity is to all who would come. It's our society that's narrow and exclusive and rigid when it says either you agree with us or we'll shout you down. Right? That's oppression. The biblical gospel says my rightness, your rightness is given to you as an adopted son or daughter of the king instead of earned by your abilities or intelligence. God is so liberal with his grace, it confounds us all, right? Can you imagine, seriously, living within and walking in a value that's not resting on your performance, but instead rests on the loyal love of another? What would it mean? It means you're free from perfectionism. It means you can own your mistakes. You don't have to hide in condemnation and shame. Dude, Christians should be the first one willing to say, I have screwed the pooch, man. I've messed up. Sorry, that's probably not an appropriate phrase to say from the pulpit. Right? The gospel, guys, the gospel means that failure is no longer final. Can you hear that? Your failures are no longer final. Like they're, they're not fatal. You see, outside the gospel, your failures are fatal. They'll cripple you. They'll destroy you. 
they will oppress you. And underneath that oppression of the law, which happens within churchianity all day long, you'll crumble. You'll begin lying. You'll begin hiding. Because you can't be wrong. You just can't. Dude, the gospel sets you free from that. Some of you probably need to go home today and look at your spouse and say, I, I was wrong. The gospel. Have you, let me, I know, I'm sure no one has ever. Have you ever been in a kind of gridlock relationally that like you just can't get out of? Like you, you're just like, I guess this is over because we're locked in and I, I'm right and she, and she thinks she's right. And has anyone ever gotten in this type of thing? Do, do you know that the power of Jesus has the ability to break that in a second. It will also break the back of pride, which is the part where like, well, I'm not gonna do that. But if you're accepted completely, fully, loved deeply, dude, how much more freely can you just walk in the room and say, I'm wrong? Like, just openness, vulnerability, rushes into the relationship in that moment. Because the oppression of pride under the law is broken in the name of Jesus. Y'all, if you're a Christian in this room, your failures no longer have the power over you. They're no longer final. They're no longer crippling. But secondly, you can actually deal with them now, can't you? Because you're not terrified of them anymore. How we live terrified of our imperfections. Jesus sets us free from that stuff, right? Like you're going to fail. But the love of God means you're not crippled by your failure. You can hear, can you imagine? I'm just teasing this out for you, man. I just want you to feel all of this manifold impact of this, of what, it, what the gospel means. Can you imagine being able to hear critique without falling apart? Can you imagine not having to be the smartest person in the room and win every argument? Have to one-up everyone to prove that you know more. This is the security of the children of God. It's what the gospel does to you. It's, it's what being deeply loved outside of your performance does to you. It seems why the New Testament writers seem to have this kind of unstoppable, victorious attitude towards life. Let me just read you something real quick and we'll get out of here. They would say things like this. Do you throw me in jail? Take my possessions. Reject me. Persecute me. Even in the face of violence, being beaten black and blue, right? They would, this would happen to them. And then they would write stuff like this. We are more than conquerors in Christ. They would be beaten black and blue in prison, in like the, the darkest prison of the prison cell. And they'd be writing stuff like this. Rejoice always. They'd say stuff like, hey man, we're afflicted in every way. Every way we're afflicted. Gone without food, gone without clothes, gone without a shelter. But we're not crushed. Dude, we're persecuted on every side, but never abandoned. Dude, we are struck down, physically struck down, but we are never destroyed. Let me ask you a question. Where does that come from? Does that come from, I'm better than you because I obey the rules? No. <laughs> Someone please explain to me how that would come from the rules. <laughs> Will following the rules do that to your heart? No. Receiving fully undeserved love, that's what that does to your heart. How does following the rules do that? No. 
Following the rules doesn't make you crazy bold like that. Being loved deeply makes you crazy bold like that. We tracking? Because, t- I mean, dude, there's like no amount of suffering, right? No amount of loss could ever take away what God has given me. And I say, oh, you know why? Oh, it's because we've been given this treasure in jars of clay. What's that mean? Oh, it means that the source is not from us. It's given. His power, his presence doesn't originate with us. Praise his name. It's something we can step into by faith. He's saying that our own sense of rightness doesn't establish us, but we get to participate in Christ. Look at me. You are not saved to more rules. You are saved in and through the power of God into abundant grace. That's the language of the New Testament. Where sin sin abounded all the more. What? Grace abounded. It's the confounding, explosive, contagious good news of Christianity that we are not saved to law, but to the abundant grace of the gift of righteousness. That's just Romans. I just quoted, quoted to you, right? So it creates all sorts of problems for us, doesn't it? Because we want something to do, all right? Just tell me what to do, Chris, right? Oh, it's a great sermon. I don't know. I didn't make sense to me. I don't know what to do. Okay, here's what you do. Rest. That's the invitation of the gospel. Rest in the, breathe in the grace. Like the invitation, there is something to do. There is something to do. Feast. Pull a chair up to the table and eat the abundant goodness that Jesus has provided for you. There is something you got to do. You got to stop doing and rest in the finished, complete work of Jesus, man. Delight yourself in his love for you. That's what you do. And apparently, that eating, that receiving, that resting was so powerful for the New Testament writers that they thought it changed the entire framework. And they begin to say things like, you're not saved to law. Not under law anymore. You're under grace. Because now, do you obey? Do you obey as a Christian? Of course you obey. Why? Because you love him. Not because you're crippled under the weight of the oppression of, if you don't do it, I'm not going to measure you. You got the cart before the horse, bro. Like, you, we, of course we surrender. Of course we obey. Of course we want to please him. But why? See, that's the whole thing. We miss the why behind the what, and we live our lives miserable Christians because the catalyst of the whole thing is not doing, it's receiving. It's it's not trying, it's accepting what God has done for you. There is something for you to do. Rest in his free gift of grace and his rightness that doesn't, not resting on your uh, ability to establish it, right? It's huge news, man. See, if it were about obeying the rules, then, then maybe more rules could fix it. But that's not what it's about. What is, what is the crux of Christianity? The crux, the, at the center is that we've relationally betrayed someone. You see? It's that we've relationally betrayed God. So if, you, if you're in a relational conflict, like if you've done some horrible, grievous thing against your wife or spouse or boss or something like that, you have two options. There's two options here. Either that person can forgive you Or that person can judge you righteously and say, you've done wrong, you're fired. You see, that's the dynamic we're dealing with. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has offered forgiveness by his death, that he has died the death that we should have died, that he lived the life that we should have lived, and he offers his rightness freely to us. This is the gospel, guys. 
And if we miss it, we've missed it all. Let's stand and pray together. Let me, um, sorry, I made you stand up. Let, let, let me, something real quick. All right, it's okay. You're going to make it? You're going to make it if you're standing? Okay. Um, if you grew up in church, you probably grew up, like I did, going to you things and hearing things like this. This is how the gospel is typically preached in church. If you grew up in church, this is probably going to be very familiar to you, okay? This is how it goes. Oh, you sinners. Right? Just imagine if all your dirty, wicked thoughts were projected on that screen. Right? Imagine the guilt and the wrath of God that's coming down on you. You need to repent from your wickedness. You need to repent from drinking and doing the drugs and going to the bad places. And Okay, I'm being, okay. Is that, is that, am I wrong? Okay, no, no, that was how it went down. All right, so full of guilt, full of shame, right? And oh, yeah, I really, you know, okay. According to what we just read, this is how the gospel should sound, and especially for Christians. And I've told you this before, and I don't, remind, I don't mind reminding you of things that break the back of pride in your life. This is, how the, this is how the gospel needs to be preached to Christians. All you beautiful, kind, generous, church-attending, Bible-reading, small-group-leading, worship-leading, tithing Christians, lovely people, right? Repent. Repent from trusting in your own rightness to save you. Repent from thinking you are better than anyone else because you've obeyed the rules. Repent from imagining that the God of the universe owes you anything and receive a rightness that's not resting on your abilities. Dude, that's the gospel I need to hear. Dude, that, that's the good news I need to hear every day of my life. That my value as a person is no longer resting on my shoulders. Mm, that's a good song, isn't it? Um, Chariots of Fire, Olympic runner uh, Eric Little said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. His uh, kind of anti-hero counterpart, Harold Ab- Abrams, in the story, said this, when that gun goes off, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. That's what the world offers you. And in religious skin, it's therapeutic moralistic deism. Can I just say to you, no amount of obeying the rules can make you whole as a person. They don't have that kind of power. They may be the path of life, but they are not the source of life. They can't revive the dead. So I just have two invitations for us today, and it's the same invitation to two people. Some of you today are realizing that the whole of your Christian life has been trying to establish your rightness on your own. And you have been therefore plagued with social anxiety, with fear. You've been driven by the oppression of religious law. And today, God is inviting you into deep rest for your soul, to receive a rightness outside of yourself. Maybe you've been trying hard to prove that you're right by Christians, and for the first time today, you're ready to say, I'm wrong. If that's you, just raise your hand, man. Just, it's fine. It's all right. It's all right. We don't got to, you know, just raise it. It's cool. The second is this. Maybe the gospel has come into focus for you today for the first time. You aren't a Christian. 
and you are exhausted from the anxiety of desperately trying to prove you're right according to everyone and their cousin, <laughs> right? Yeah, I got to think rightly about this issue, this issue and think rightly. And maybe for today, for the first time, you're willing to say, actually, I think I'm wrong. I think I'm wrong. I think I, think I want to be wrong so that I can receive a rightness that's not mine. And if that's you, man, just come forward. Come up here. We got people who love to pray with you, talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus and receive a rightness that's not your own. Father, thank you so much that, that there's a simplicity to the gospel and then there's a confounding complexity to the gospel. And Lord, I just, I just pray that today the simplicity of receiving a gift was made abundantly clear to us and that we do not uh, progress in our Christian life. We don't switch a, a, a switch and all of a sudden now it's up to us. No, it's, it's all gift. It's all grace. It's all something that we've been given. Lord, would you have mercy on us and help us to live, help us to walk this out in a way that, that exemplifies and exalts the grace of Jesus in our hearts and lives. God, I pray that today some would just have the pressure valve relieved of performance that's been on them their whole lives. Lord, break that curse in the name of Jesus, Lord. Lord, break off this law, this oppressive weight on some of our shoulders that says it's all up to us and we have to desperately claw at it and prove our rightness before everyone else. God, break it off, Jesus. Secure us in your love. Matt, let's sing it. Let's sing that first Amazing Grace one more time. Let's sing. Come on, raise your voice, guys.